Today we're reading from Mark chapter 6, so let's get into the word and read together. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom he has been given him, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, He is Elijah. And still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John the man I beheaded has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put into prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to do that, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. <clears throat> Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried in to the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all of the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. 
so he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, You give them something to eat. They said to him, Well, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all of the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was five thousand. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get in the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida, where he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on the mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed in the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, the towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. This is a remarkable passage. And I want to take a quick step back and kind of take a look at the entire, uh, not just New Testament, but the Gospels. Sometimes we have the feeling like the Gospels are about the life of Jesus, and they are. Um, But really, the Gospels are focused primarily on the ministry of Jesus on his earth. That very short three-year time span where Jesus, after his baptism, began his public ministry that culminated in his execution and his resurrection. But the truth is, we know almost nothing of Jesus' personal life. I mean, we have very small bits and pieces. We knew that he was born in Bethlehem. We know he grew up in Nazareth. We knew that his parents, from the book of Matthew, are uh, Mary and Joseph. But remarkably, we know very little else about Jesus' kind of personal life or his day-to-day life until Mark chapter 6. Here, and even if you read fast enough, you miss it, you suddenly have a wealth of information about Jesus and his life. Look here, right at the beginning, Jesus left there and went to his hometown. Well, we know from the previous chapters that he had moved to Capernaum, where he had kind of used that as a base of operations for his ministry in Galilee, that is the northern region uh, in the uh, region that we call Israel. He is returning to his hometown, and here we would presume that to be Nazareth. Right away, He goes to the 
on the Sabbath to the synagogue to preach. So it seems as though when he had returned to town, he may have visited with his family, but uh, on the Sabbath, it was time for business. And he went to the synagogue and began to preach. The very first thing that the people in the synagogue say, you remember, they would have known Jesus. And uh, if they had been old enough, they would have known him growing up. They may have even uh, seen him as a very young child. And they knew his family. And guess what? We learn a lot about his family here. Who is this that he has wisdom that he's been given that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? So, we know he's a carpenter. Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of, ready, James Joseph, Judas, and Simon. Boom, right there. We know four of Jesus, uh, what you would call half-brothers or step-brothers. And are his sisters here with us? Well, we would presume there that two or more uh, women were his sisters, and they took offense at him. This is remarkable. Suddenly, we know a great deal about Jesus' life, at least a little bit about his family. And we know his trade. Apparently, before his public ministry, he was a carpenter, much like his father. Now, this is an interesting Greek word, tekton. This is where we get um, the word architect, which means the chief builder or chief carpenter. Now, here Jesus makes a very important point, and I think it's kind of repeated throughout, not just Mark, but the other Gospels. Jesus faced a tremendous amount of resistance from the people in his life that thought they knew him the best. And I think there's an analogy there for us. When we give our lives to Jesus and we start to profess the wonderful transformation that we have gone through by being a believer of Jesus, we sometimes rub people the wrong way, especially the people that think they know us the best. And we don't have to uh, stretch this too far. You can certainly see uh, the people in your own closest family tend to be the ones that um, know you the best, but also from time to time give you the least amount of benefit of the doubt, so to speak. Now, you certainly running into that here. Yeah, they make this comment in here in Mark, he could not do any miracles there. I think that was more out of, he could not out of an abundance of, there was not amount of faith. And we have seen from the Gospels that Jesus primarily performed miracles when there was an element of faith involved, at least some level of faith or belief that Jesus was who he said he was. Jesus rarely performed miracles in the presence of those that outright did not believe in him or rejected him. It was very unusual. And here you see that here too. And when the text alludes to he couldn't do it, it's not really out of a power thing. Obviously, we would, we would expect that he could do anything if he wanted to. It's more out of maybe God the Father preventing him, could be the Holy Spirit preventing him, and it could just be that he chose not to do it because there were no believers there. The next passage is wonderful because it shows the authority and trust that Jesus is starting to put in his own disciples. Here we see that he's sending them out, sending them out to preach the word of God, but not just that, he's also sending them out to perform miracles. Send them two by two and give them authority over evil spirits. Well, that's wonderful. He's kind of entrusting his disciples now on their journey because they're taking that next step. They're not perfect, but they're certainly growing in their understanding of the word. And now they're getting to the point where he trusts them enough to go out on their own and preach the word to others. You notice here how Jesus is giving them very specific instructions about what to take or what not to take on the journey. Take nothing for your journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. 
Okay, a little bit of context is important here. Traveling preachers were very common in this era. And remember before I talked about traveling um, healers or doctors would travel around and sell miracle cures to people um, for their various ailments. Well, the same thing happened for traveling preachers. And in a way, it was becoming a very lucrative money-making enterprise for those, those traveling preachers. Jesus is doing two things here. First thing is, he's trying to keep the disciples grounded in saying, you're not going out to make any money here. This is not a money-making effort. This is not to make your own uh, glory uh, you know, shine. This is not about making you more famous. This is about you preaching the word of God. So don't make it look like you're out there to make money. The second thing he's doing is teaching them to continue to rely on God to provide for their daily needs. Look here. He's saying, you need to trust God the Father to provide everything you'll need. Bread, a bag to hold things, money, tunics in case it gets chilly at night. He's saying, and again, he's having them preach the word, but he's also um, acknowledging that they're still learning. They're still disciples, even though they're teaching others. What a remarkable moment. And it says they went out and preached that people should repent. Here's a central core idea for the New Testament. Repentance. What does repentance mean? Jesus over and over says that salvation is tied to human repentance. Salvation itself is a supernatural act that God and God alone has the sovereign authority to grant, but it comes after a choice made by a human to change their ways, to turn around from the way they were before, to turn their minds from the way they were to the future, and to make a new life for themselves. This word, metanoieo, in Greek means essentially to change your mind and change your heart and your actions. And so the after should look different than the before, and that's what repent here means. Next, we see this very interesting passage about John the Baptist being murdered, essentially, by King Herod. First, a point of order. This is not the King Herod of the baby years of Jesus. Herod the Great died probably somewhere around 4 AD, give or take, when Jesus was still a very young child. King Herod here is referring to Herod Antipas, King Herod the Great's son, who ruled this region from his father's death um, to about 37 AD, give or take. This man was not really a king in the sense of Herod the Great. He was more of what was called a tetrarch, essentially. He was kind of a a fancy name for a a super governor, if you want to think of it that way. But he wasn't really king, and he he certainly wasn't the king on the scale that his father, Herod the Great, was. Um, But uh, certainly the Romans did not see Herod Antipas as a great king, um, but you can imagine Herod Antipas was not about to tell his subjects that. Anyway, the author here is trying to kind of catch up and say, look, while Jesus was doing a lot of this, some other things were going on with John the Baptist. He kind of, you know, we stopped talking about him for a while. Well, it turns out that at some point he really ticked off Herod Antipas, and he got himself thrown in prison for it. Now, It's a very interesting passage because it suggests that even though Herod had him thrown in prison, Herod was fascinated 
by John the Baptist. And he kept him around for a reason. I think, again, this shows that God can use people in many circumstances. Whether they might seem bad or good, God can use any circumstance to further his kingdom and his glory. Here we see that John the Baptist was preaching the word of repentance to Herod while he was still in prison. Now we have, of course, this this um, just you know awful, quite honestly, passage where Herod gets drunk, uh, he throws himself a party, he promises um, half the kingdom to what is is most likely a very salacious moment um, in his life um, to the, to the daughter of this woman, and you know it kind of speaks volumes that uh, Herodias hated John so much that even with half the kingdom promised, the one thing she asked for was the death of John the Baptist, and that's exactly what she got. So John has fulfilled his purpose here, and for us it looks harsh, and it's, it, it is harsh, but John did exactly what he came to this world to do, to prepare the way for the Messiah and for Jesus. And now, unfortunately, John has paid the price for that, but he is in glory, we would imagine. And now Jesus um, is doing exactly what John the Baptist prepared the way for him to do. This next miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, is remarkable and is one of the most famous miracle stories in the entire Bible. I uh, famously ask people, uh, what are the only two miracles actually recorded in all four Gospels? And there's only two, and most people are actually surprised to hear that. Well, it's true. uh, The only two specific miracles that we know of recorded in every Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is one, the feeding of the 5,000, and two, the resurrection of Christ. Here we see Jesus feeding the 5,000. It's a long day. And and again, the point must be made here that Jesus' fame is really reaching an all-time high now. Herod knows about him. Thousands of people know about him. They're coming from all of the villages, the surrounding towns, the countryside, to hear Jesus preach, to have him heal them, and to listen to his word. So after a long day of preaching, Jesus uh, retires uh, you know, on the boat, but yet the crowds follow him. He can't seem to get away from them. Of course, he meant this, of course. Finally, after a long day, he puts this crowd on a hill in front of him, and he preaches them the word, and then he feeds them. And of course, at the beginning, you can see the disciples here. They're like, you know, Jesus says, uh, you know, uh, we need to go, and it's very late, and it's uh, probably time to eat. And he says, yeah, you give them something to eat. Well, I think that by reading this, I see the disciples kind of hearing that, thinking Jesus is being sarcastic, right? They're like, we've got to send them away. And Jesus is like, you give them something to eat. And they probably are tired and hangry. If they're uh, like me, they get, they get very grumpy when they're hungry and tired. And so they interpreted this badly. And they think Jesus is being sarcastic. Well, they responded with sarcasm. And they say, well, that would take eight months of a man's wages, are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them? But Jesus was not being sarcastic here. He was being serious, asking them how many loaves they have. Go and see. Now, by the time this is all done, a huge number of people have been fed. Their basic daily needs met by trusting in Jesus. Again, we see time and again a miracle kind of um, either preceding or or, um, coming after something spiritual that Jesus is trying to make a point of. And here, Jesus is trying to make the point, depend on God for your daily provision, your daily bread, your daily needs. He says that. Then he has 
his disciples go out. And then we have this wonderful story where actually he does provide them. Those people on that hill didn't have to work to earn their bread and their fish. They didn't have to go and sell their belongings to get it. They didn't have to worry about anything except trusting Jesus and listening to his word. And that's exactly what happened. I really want to make the point here that this is not a fairy tale. And this is not just a cute story that we read in the Bible and we close it and we go about our day. This is exactly what Jesus is expecting us today, you the listener, me, to do. Wake up, pray, trust God is going to take care of you, do what you've got to do, but at the end of the day, trust that God is going to meet your needs. And if you believe that, he will meet them. You just have to believe it. This final piece about walking on the water, yet again, another miracle to illustrate that God is sovereign and his power is immense. And he is trying to, you know, calm them. He's showing them his power by walking on water. He can't be destroyed, at least not until he wants to be. And I think finally here, when they finally cross over in Gennesaret, you see now the fruit of what had happened a few chapters ago. You remember Legion, the man in the, the Gentile region of kind of the Decapolis there, who had um, all of those demons inside of him, and he had cut himself, and he was living in the tombs, and Jesus healed him. And that man wanted to join Jesus and become one of his disciples, and Jesus said, no, no, you need to go back to your family. You need to tell people about what has happened. Guess what? That has happened. While Jesus has now been away on the other side of the lake preaching, that man went and told his friends, his family, his neighbors, and now the word of Jesus has spread throughout that entire region. As soon as Jesus returns, he is swamped by people who have heard the word of Jesus, of what he did for this man, and the words that he was preaching. How amazing is that? They came from all over. And you're really starting to see now this um, the fame of Jesus really starting to grow exponentially. People are hearing about it. They're responding. They're coming from all over. He can't even rest without people swamping him. This is a remarkable moment, and we're starting to get now to the apex of his ministry on earth. Join us next week as we look at Mark chapter 7.